Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a legal and HR podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Over the past year in the U.S., anxiety over health and safety have been building for workers transitioning from remote to in-person work. These concerns have the potential to increase the number of OSHA complaints and thus whistleblower claims. In this session, our experts will provide practical information to best prepare for whistleblower events or how to avoid them altogether. Today's program is moderated by Michelle Freeman, associate at Hirschfeld Kramer in San Francisco, California. As a bonus, we had a chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance, and the discussion will have questions from them that our panel will be addressing in the commentary. Let's join Michelle as she introduces the program and moderates the discussion. Thank you, Peter, and hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We are looking forward to a great discussion on this timely topic of OSHA whistleblower complaints, and I'd like to start off by introducing you to today's panelists. First, we have Dan Harrington, who is a partner in the Labor and Employment Litigation Section of the Little Rock, Arkansas firm of Friday, Eldridge, and Clark, who represents clients with operations all over the country. Dan has devoted his entire 25 years of practice to defending and advising employers in all facets of the law relating to employees and employee problems. He has argued before the Arkansas Supreme Court and the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals and has a number of accolades including being recognized as the top attorney in Arkansas for labor and employment law, and has second chaired a three-week trial before the OSHA Review Commission. Next, we have Jonathan Crotty, who is a partner at Parker Poe and heads Parker Poe's Employment and Benefits Practice Group. Over the past 30 plus years, Jonathan has served as a trusted counselor and problem solver for his clients in the Carolinas. His practice includes defending employers in discrimination and wage and hour matters, as well as providing advice on OSHA compliance. And last but not least, we have Denise Greathouse, a partner at Michael Best in the Labor and Employment Relations Group. Denise represents clients in a wide array of industries and has extensive experience handling whistleblower claims. In addition, Denise advises on complicated OSHA inspections involving fatalities and conducts OSHA informal conferences. So now you have an understanding of who our speakers are, I'm just going to quickly go over what they're going to talk to you about here today. Kicking us off is Dan, who will be leading a discussion on the anatomy of a whistleblower claim, including the types of retaliation that are prohibited and what to expect during a whistleblower claim process. Next, Jonathan will provide some practical advice on returning employees to work and how to avoid whistleblower claims. And last, Denise is going to dig into some real-life cases and provide insight as to what a COVID-19 retaliation case may look like as it makes its way through the process. And without further ado, I will turn it over to Dan. Thank you, Michelle. So as Michelle said, I've been tasked with providing a brief overview of OSHA and an anatomy of the whistleblower protection program by OSHA. I think it's appropriate because OSHA and I have at least two things in common. We were both born in 1970 and employers don't like to talk to us. So what is, what is OSHA? I think everybody knows. If you're on this call, if you're interested in whistleblower claims, you know what OSHA is. But just briefly, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration administers the safe workplace laws in the United States, with some exceptions. If, for instance, MSHA, which is the Mine Safety and Health Administration, another Department of Labor entity, governs uh, OSHA-type stuff at mines. 
you're all familiar with, probably have had OSHA come to your workplace at least once. Uh, you're familiar with the OSHA 300 log, your reporting requirements, your general duty clause, obligation to provide a safe and healthful workplace, and then, of course, standards specific to your industry that deal with you know, everything from lockout tagout to uh, your HASCOM program, et cetera, and you're familiar with that. What we're going to talk about today is really just the OSHA whistleblower protection program and what that is. And it's simple. It's the retaliation enforcement arm of OSHA. But what you may not know is that OSHA actually enforces the whistleblower protections in 20 or so different statutes. And that includes, let me uh, just kind of go over that. What That includes the Affordable Care Act, which we all have heard a lot about, but you may not have heard of the Anti-Money Laundering Act or the Asbestos Hazard Emergency Act. And don't worry, I'm not going to read all of them to you, but I will, I'll just briefly, you know, you've heard of Sarbanes-Oxley. You may not have heard of the Federal Railroad Safety Act, though, but there are five whistleblower provisions of statutes that are four, let me say, over the last five years that are the most common. What would be your guess as to the most common statute enforced? And that, of course, is the OSH Act. Roughly 73% of whistleblower claims are brought under Section 11C of the Act. But then following that is the Surface Transportation Assistance Act, uh, some of you are familiar with the acronym STAA or STA. That is basically the, the act that covers, you know, truck drivers' safety complaints, or at least that's been my practice experience. Then next, you have the Federal Railroad Safety Act, which would cover, well, which would protect whistleblowers who raise complaints on the nation's rail lines. And then finally, number four is the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which is you know, is securities reform. You guys are familiar with that, I'm sure. So who can file a whistleblower complaint and what types of retaliation are prohibited? Well, you might be surprised because of course you say, well, a whistleblower is an employee, right? Well, a whistleblower can also be an applicant and is probably more common than an applicant. I can't imagine what kind of whistleblowing an applicant would do, but the statute specifically covers them and the definition of employee. But former employees are also covered. And for UHR practitioners that deal with EEOC charges and employment discrimination, you know, it's been a while now, but in Robinson versus Shell Oil, the U.S. Supreme Court said that Title VII protected former employees from retaliation. And of course, the OSH Act and the acts that it enforces or investigates, I should say, all cover uh, former employees as well. What kinds of retaliation, acts of retaliation are prohibited? Again, you probably know this if you do any EEO work, and, and that is the easy ones are what? They are discharged, right? If I was discharged, demoted, laid off, transferred some distance. Uh, I don't know about where all of our attendees are from, but in the Eighth Circuit federal court jurisdiction, the courts have said that, you know, transfers of short distances aren't necessarily retaliatory, which might, there might be some tension there with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Burlington versus Burlington Northern Railroad versus White, where I believe it was Justice Scalia writing for the majority said anything that might dissuade a reasonable person from complaining. And I don't think he was the majority. I think he wrote a concurrence. But so it can be anything, right? It can be anything that 
would make an employee's life more difficult, whether it's transferring them to the third shift or in the Burlington Northern case, it was taking her off a piece of equipment that was sort of viewed as the plum assignment and making her work on or operate equipment that was more difficult to operate, uh, more uh, opportunities for errors, et cetera. So anything really that could be viewed as retaliatory firing, layoff, moding, denying overtime, that's, a, you know, I'm sure in your workplace, like the, my clients, employees, they, it could be making them work overtime. So, you know, uh, in, uh, in most of my clients' shops that have a lot of overtime, employees want it when they want it, and they don't want it when they don't want it. Does that make sense? So making them work overtime or denying them the opportunity overtime. So let's say you get a notice from OSHA that, uh, you have won the whistleblower lottery and now you're going to get investigated. What should you expect? Well, first, obviously you're gonna get the notice of the complaint. You're gonna be given uh, some basic information and then they're gonna ask you for a position statement, uh, any written evidence that you have. This would be a great time to call your attorney and email them a copy of that notice and involve them early on. And of course, there we have a lot of nationwide attendees I'm not stumping for work. I got plenty to do, but don't fly solo here. This is a, an area where you can definitely use counsel. But I will say, regardless of the statute under which the complaint is filed, the conduct of the investigation generally follows the same pattern. Uh, you're going to get likely a request for a position statement and a request for any documentary evidence. Why, if you're saying you didn't fire Dan because of his protected activity, why did you fire Dan? You know, that sort of thing. Have you had others that have engaged in the conduct that you, you say Dan was fired for, et cetera? So you're going to be asked for that kind of information. Of course, I think every attorney on the panel today will say document, document, document. The more documentation you can provide to OSHA to defend your employment-related decision. Uh, again, this obviously that advice is not limited to OSHA complaints, but that's what you need to do. And in the Department of Labor, OSHA, they have an ADR program, just like uh, other federal agencies. There may be an opportunity for early resolution, informal settlement. And cert under certain of these statutes, the complainant may kick out. That means they may basically, again, to use an EEOC analogy, but they may basically get that sort of right to sue golden ticket to the federal courthouse and be able to go file suit if OSHA has failed to close it out. Uh, within 180 days under most of the statutes, a couple of the statutes are 210. I uh, have no idea why that would be, but you know, that's the federal government, right? So that is a very brief overview of the anatomy of a whistleblower claim. And so I will give it back to our moderator. Thank you, Dan. That was a very thorough covering of the whistleblower protection program. Up next, we have Jonathan Crotty. Jonathan, please take it away and tell us what we need to know to avoid whistleblower claims. All right, thank you, Michelle. Good morning or good afternoon to everybody. I wanna take Dan's overview and an explanation of whistleblower claims and talk about them in the context of what we've all been dealing with with most of our time or at least some of our time over the last 15 months or so, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are really two issues I wanna to cover today. Number one, how could your, how could the employer's COVID-19 safety policies and plans 
result in OSHA retaliation claims? What are the likely areas of conflict you may see with your employees who are returning to work at this point in time? And second of all, how can the employer proactively protect a company from potential retaliation claims? All of these are potential sources of OSHA complaints from employees dealing with COVID-19 related issues. They turn into retaliation claims when the employee believes that the company is taking adverse action against them because of an internal or external complaint that they've made about these practices. So how does it, again, how does this arise in the COVID context? In general, all of these points or most of these points relate to claims that the employer is not following guidance put out by OSHA or by the CDC. That guidance, the OSHA guidance, the CDC guidance is not regulatory unless you're in the healthcare industry, which we'll talk about a little bit later, or unless you're in one of the handful of states that have their own emergency COVID standards in place right now. It's really more of a list of best practices, and there are a whole bunch of them. Uh, of course, it includes masks and social distancing, which we're all familiar with, but there've been a lot of other things proposed or indicated over time. Things like surface cleaning and taking employees' temperatures and answering questionnaires, ventilation improvements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Most employers are not going to do all of these things. And you may have employees who are upset because a particular measure they think should be in place is not being done by the employer or has been discontinued as well. A lot of the complaints that we are seeing involve masks, of course. That seems to be a real hot button topic for a lot of employees, especially as the CDC and OSHA guidance changes and as states continue to lift their mask mandates. And based on the current OSHA guidance, they've really created kind of two classes of employees, those who are fully vaccinated and those who aren't. And there really are two different rules in place with regard to masks, depending on which uh, bucket you fall into. So the complaints that we are hearing come from employees who say, I know so-and-so is not vaccinated, yet they're running around the office without their mask on. What are you going to do about it? Um, a very common complaint. I think from the whistleblower perspective, probably the biggest area of potential exposure to employers involves return to the office. We have a lot of employers are saying, look, vaccines are widely available. COVID rates are dropping around the country. Come on back to work. We're ready for you right now. And then the, uh, the employee calls HR and says, well, wait a minute. I'm not comfortable coming back to the office because of blank. Now, usually it's some combination of I have an underlying medical condition, which I believe makes me more susceptible to getting sick in combination with, well, you're not doing this or you're not doing that uh, in terms of it. In other words, I'm not say, I don't feel safe coming back to the workplace. The employer looks at the employee's position and says, you know what? We understand what you're saying. You still need to come back. Your job is no longer going to be available on a remote basis. Uh, the employee refuses to come back. Disciplinary action, oftentimes termination occurs. And then you've got your OSHA retaliation claim there uh, as a result of that. Now, a lot of the human resource folks I talk to believe that the types of complaints you're getting from employees aren't really based on legitimate concerns about workplace safety. They're more from the perspective of people who've gotten very comfortable working remotely and don't want to come back to work. In most cases, that's just going to be speculation, and I would not rely on that as the basis for defending the retaliation claim when it comes in. Um, to give you an example of this, a couple of weeks ago, the Department of Labor's solicitors, which are the lawyers uh, that represent OSHA, sued a dental practice on Staten Island in New York on behalf of an employee. This was relatively early on in the uh, COVID pandemic. 
But the, uh, the dental practice had just opened back up and said, we want everybody to come in for a staff meeting. And this employee said, well, I don't feel safe coming into the staff meeting. I don't think you're doing social distancing correct. I'm not coming in. I'll call in by telephone, but I'm not coming in. Uh, the practice uh, fired the employee. Uh, she complained to OSHA, and now OSHA is suing in federal district court in New York on her behalf. So that's just kind of an example of how this may arise in a return to work context. Um, another area where you may see employees complain about uh, involves travel, and that's pretty much domestic travel at this point in time. But the employee may say, you know, look, I'm perfectly comfortable coming back to the office, but I don't want to go to an airport. I don't want to get on an airplane right now uh, because of safety concerns as well. So that may be uh, one of the particular areas of complaint. Um, we've heard a lot recently about vaccination policies and mandatory vaccination policies. And I'm sure everyone has seen the Texas court decision a couple of weeks ago uh, that threw out some claims from Houston hospital employees who alleged that their rights were being violated when the hospital said you had to get a vaccine as a condition of continuing employment. Um, there are some lawyers who have pointed out that there is an old pre-COVID guidance from OSHA that says that employers uh, who take adverse action against employees for refusal to get a vaccine that doesn't have permanent FDA approval could be retaliating against them. And of course, as of right now, none of the three vaccines approved in the US have that permanent FDA approval. They're all under emergency use um, approval right now. Um, now, I have not seen any claims on that basis pursued by OSHA. I haven't even seen OSHA mention that old guidance in anything they put out um, since COVID uh, came out. Um, that guidance was not a factor in the Texas decision, but it is possible, I suppose, that someone who is terminated because they refuse to be vaccinated uh, could raise that as a claim. Now, not many employers are requiring vaccinations uh, due to employee relations and other issues, but if you are, it's a possibility that that argument uh, could arise. Uh, there are a couple of other areas that are kind of unique to healthcare employers. The first involves respirator standards. Now, I said earlier on that the OSHA and the CDC guidances are that, they're just guidances. Uh, there is an exception, however, for employers that have made the determination that employees must wear respirators in certain areas. And for COVID uh, or infectious diseases, that's typically, or it's gonna be healthcare employers in that situation. Um, you could have employees who complain that the employer is not following the respirator standard. They're not providing the N95 masks. They're not training employees in their use or they're not doing appropriate fit testing. And there could be complaints on that basis as well. Uh, we also, as of two weeks ago, for healthcare employers only, have a new federal emergency temporary COVID-19 standard. Uh, and if you look at this standard and the 900 pages of regulations that accompanied it, uh, we have a long list of mandatory obligations. Uh, things like PPE, um, physical distancing, ventilation, paid leave, et cetera. Uh, employers have a very short period of time to get their COVID-19 uh, policy into place. It is likely that they will not be perfect and this could lead to complaints from employees that you're not doing everything. I will point out that the ETS rules require that you put an anti-retaliation statement in the mandatory written plan um, as well. So as a result of all of these factors, I think we, we need to go back on one slide and I don't have control over that. Um, but uh, uh, OSHA has been flooded with COVID-19 related complaints. Um, how should employers then minimize the potential for those complaints to turn into viable retaliation claims? 
that has been a prediction of an explosion of these retaliation claims relating to COVID-19. I haven't seen it. I'd be interested in hearing what the other panelists' um, experiences have been. Maybe they're coming, maybe they aren't. Maybe employers just aren't terminating people uh, who make complaints in this area. But a couple of steps uh, that I would uh, advise employers to put into place or to think about at least. One, you should have a written COVID-19 policy, something that you can reference as the basis for steps that you are taking with regard to employee complaints or your own particular workplace. It should not be a static document. It needs to be updated in accordance with changing CDC and OSHA guidance. Uh, and it should include an anti-retaliation provision. In other words, explain that employees who bring complaints in good faith will not be retaliated against. There won't be adverse action taken against them as a result of it. I would also document enforcement of the policy. Again, it shouldn't just sit on a shelf. Uh, there should be documentation of the fact that you are actually policing this to a certain extent. And if you do have violations of it, that you're taking appropriate action in response to that. Again, it shows the legitimate business reasons why these actions are taken, and they're tied to the specific policies uh, that you have in place. If an employee does complain, as Dan said, document, document, document. Document the responses to the employee complaints. Show that we received it. When we received it, we reviewed it. We came to a conclusion, and we got back to the employee. We didn't ignore it, and we didn't blame them for bringing those complaints to us in the first place. And I think this is true in all cases, but especially with COVID, I would really urge employers to work with your employees. Remember, there is a massive amount of disinformation out there right now that your employees are accessing regarding COVID and their exposure risks to COVID. So try to do the best you can in understanding where the employee is coming from and having respectful discussions with them about their concerns. Um, express your understanding of their concerns and thank them for commenting or bringing them to your attention, even if ultimately you, you disagree with that. I think by doing that and going the extra mile to work with the employee, you can, def, you know, you can diffuse thoughts on the employee's part uh, that they believe they're just being blown off or that uh, there's not any attention being paid to their concerns. Um, all of this is great for human resources, but you have to communicate this to your line managers and supervisors. They have to understand that just because the employee has complained, you can't take any type of adverse action against them. So again, there may be a wave of these claims coming from COVID, there may not, uh, but all employers I think should think about this in advance and should be prepared to address employee complaints uh, when they come in in order to try to minimize the possibility of a viable whistleblower claim coming. That is all from me, Michelle, I will turn it back over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Sounds like there is a lot that employers have to keep in mind as they navigate workplace safety during COVID. Next, let's hear from Denise Greathouse, who is going to provide us with some insight on whistleblower claims in the process. Thank you, Michelle. So Dan put some scare into everyone. He talked about so many different ways there could be a whistleblower claim. And you're probably sitting in your seat thinking, wait, ooh, I, I had one employee who said this or did that, and maybe I didn't deal with it right, or it may be a claim coming my way. And, and there could be a claim coming your way. But then Jonathan helped you out and said, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to give you different ways to address this. There are different ways, different rules, different policies you can put in place that can prevent you, not from just getting the, the claim, because anyone can file a claim, but defending the claim. Now, I'm going to talk to you a bit, one, to tell you the realistic, the realistic feel of there is going to be an uptick. There has been an uptick, and I think it's going to continue to be an uptick. 
Out of 4,101 whistleblower complaints, 1,600 of those were whistleblower complaints related to COVID-19. Just what Jonathan was talking about. And I guarantee you a lot of those were based on discussions that employers did not have either on the leadership level, management level, uh, managers and supervisors that made the employee feel that they were being treated with dignity and respect. Sometimes it's not, that we, we all get a number of employees who have different complaints that we think has have no merit to it. I get it, but you have to listen. You have to address it. You have to document how you addressed it and then you close it out. Then we get into, again, document whistleblower complaints, closed investigations, remain open uh, investigations. There is an uptick. There has been an uptick in 2020, especially between February and May of 2020, and it will continue. Why will it continue? Because there is a huge emphasis on whistleblower complaints. See, OSHA has been ridiculed a number of times with how they have been handling these whistleblower complaints. And due to how they've been handling these whistleblower complaints, I feel, of course, since I represent employers, I thought they were doing a great job. I'm sure Dan and Jonathan would say the same. We were able to defend these. We were able to show the great job our clients were doing. Everything was good. But we have some people who say, no, not doing enough. You're not putting enough onus on the employer to do more. So what has happened? Dan talked about it. Jonathan talked about it. But let's talk about some cases and get realistic about it. Now, these cases won't be the ones that has come just recently because we, we haven't seen the full-blown yet situation with the COVID, uh, with COVID complaints. Some of them have not completely gone through the process of investigation, which Dan was talking about the process there. Some of them have not gone through appeals, so we're not seeing them completely yet, but we are definitely hearing about them. I'm definitely defending them on a weekly basis, daily basis. Dan, I'm sure, will say the same, and Jonathan as well. But let's talk about a couple of other cases, some past cases, to get kind of an understanding of what has things been looking like in 2020 with some decisions. And this is, I'm taking you past the investigation level. I'm taking you to the level of now it was either dismissed by the investigator or there was a finding, but in mo more importantly, they're in front of an administrative law judge. I'm going to first talk to you about Federal Express Corporation. Now, what I want each one of you to do I don't care what position you're in. I don't care about your title right now. Because right now, all you are to all of us panelists, all right, AOJ, you have been either promoted or demoted. I don't know what position you hold or how you feel about administrative law judges. But in any event, that's your title. That's the hat you're wearing. I'm going to talk to you about these cases. And I want you to think and try to come up with how you think they came out based on what you've been hearing from Dan and Jonathan. Let's talk about Better Express. This we have is a pilot. We have a pilot who's scheduled to fly. He's at his hotel. He looks at the news. He's like, oh, wait, where I'm flying to, there's a lot of thunderstorms going on. I, I'll sit here and just, just kind of let things happen, uh, figure out how things are going to go. Do we have a problem yet? Yeah, I didn't say he contacted his employer. I said he stayed at his hotel and he was waiting for the storm to pass. Employer contacted him. I said, look, are you coming in? He said, no, I am not coming in because I, I see there's a storm coming and I'm, I'm concerned about flying in the storm. They said, look, we have a different route you can take that would avoid the storm. He said, no, I still don't feel comfortable. There were multiple calls going back and forth. He never came in. The flight was delayed. And then it was actually officially delayed because of the weather. 
there was a meeting that was scheduled for him. This meeting he took to believe as a termination meeting. During this meeting, they took evidence from everyone to determine from the dispatcher that he called and also from him. And some of those calls, as you can imagine, were recorded. Why? Because complainants do hit record on their phones. So some of those were recorded. Dispatcher said, look, I told him to come in. He should have come in. Even though the weather was bad, he needed to be, he needed to report. He says, look, after speaking with the dispatcher, it was agreed upon. I didn't have to report. So I stayed at the hotel. At the time that he received that meeting invite, guess what he did? He ran to OSHA, maybe not literally, and filed a complaint retaliation. He's saying he's being retaliated against because he didn't want to fly in this bad weather and now they're terminating him. Well, after the disciplinary action, uh, situation meeting, shall I say, FedEx decided that, okay, based on what we're hearing in these recordings, it did sound like the dispatcher may have told him he didn't have to come in. So we won't, we won't discipline him at all. ALJs, I'm not done with this case, but ALJs, all of you out there, he filed a complaint. You heard Dan talk about the different elements and what could be considered retaliation. Based on the meeting that occurred, and I told you there was no discipline, is there retaliation there? ALJ would say, no retaliation there. Actually, before they, he, he even went to that part, Complainant realized he didn't have a retaliation case, so he withdrew his complaint. But do you think that's all we're going to hear from this particular employee? It would not be that easy if that was the case, right? You're exactly right. A couple months later, he calls. He calls the CEO this time. He says, look, I've been on the internet, and I've been reading about terrorist attack activity, and I think they've been paying attention to how we're tracking. And they're trying to come up with some way to blow up one of our planes. And not only that, you know that former employer, Dan, I'm going to use your name. I'm sorry, I got to get you. You know that former employer, Dan, who used to work for us? Yeah, I know for a fact that he tried to hijack a plane before. And he's working with the terrorists. You can imagine the CEO, right? He's like, oh, wow, what do we have here? As you can imagine, Different individuals who heard about his concerns about this terrorist attack thought maybe we should get a what's been called, and many of you have had to deal with this, a fit for duty evaluation of him. We may want to get a psychological evaluation of him. They did a psychological evaluation and they brought him back to work after, oh, I'm sorry, he mentioned he was made a mark in a post, he felt fatigue. And he talked about the former employer, uh, employee hijacking the plane and discussed 9-11 as well. The fact that they did a psychological evaluation on him, he filed a retaliation claim. And he filed a retaliation claim saying, look, there was no reason for them to do a psychological evaluation on me. The only reason they did this psychological evaluation on me is because I filed a complaint earlier with OSHA. So now they're retaliating against me. Look at the time frame, not too far away, is it? So again, ALJ's out there. Now there has to be a decision. 
He does have protected activity with the filing a complaint. The fact that you file or the employer made you go through a psychological evaluation, is that retaliation? What do you think the ALJ said? You are all correct. They said, no, it's not retaliation. There is protected activity, but the protected activity was not the reason for the psychological evaluation. It was actually the fact that he made these concerns. Why do I bring this one to your attention? I bring this one to your attention to draw you back to what some of the things that Jonathan was saying about documentation, treating everyone with respect and dignity. They treated him with dignity and respect the entire time, asked him the various different questions. And then they documented why they felt that he needed to have a psychological evaluation. I can tell you in that particular case, the ALJ made clear and the decisions made clear because I'm sorry, it was appealed by him, of course. The decisions made clear that we are not saying that uh, actual psychological evaluation within itself is a problem, we're not. But we will say this, if it's not implemented consistently and unilaterally and randomly implemented, say for instance, you've had others make comments before, but all of a sudden now you want to Someone who was similar, making those similar comments is the person that you want to actually have an evaluation of. That will be problematic. I bring that one up just to make sure that you have the right policies and rules in place that you do not make those mistakes. I'm going to go through another one with you here. This is Minnesota Eastern Railroad Corporation. We have two conductors. One conductor is telling the other conductor, or they're far away from each other and he's trying to bring his train in. So he yells to one conductor and says, Hey, tell me, should I be on track two or three? He doesn't get a response. He says it again. He doesn't get a response. Typical person might try to figure out another way to communicate, but he decides that he was going to walk up to this person and hit them upside their head, hit them with a lantern, and call them names. I guess that happens in some employers. I don't know. I'm glad I don't work with him. But after doing that, um, there was a cursing match that went on, and the second employee later had to decide he had some bruising because he, he did get beat up pretty bad. He got punched and hit in the head with a ladder. He decided he had to think about, should I report this or not? He talked to several people in his family, friends, circle, and everyone but one person said, don't report it. You guys are fine now. He decided, I'm going to report it. Now, this is days later. After he reported that there was an investigation that took place, and of course, the individual who hit him said that actually when he walked up to the individual, to the employee, the employee started cursing at him, and he accidentally punched him and hit him in the head with a lantern. Complete accident, of course. We all have this, right? Happens to me sometimes with my employer. I accidentally hit them, right? Um, and then he says, look, the other person, the victim who's claiming he's hurt is the one who's actually started this. At the end of the investigation, they decided to discipline both. One was terminated and one was suspended. The ALJ and, of course, the, the individual who was harmed says, I was only terminated, uh, suspended because I reported my work-related injury, which could be considered retaliation. OSHA looked at it, and they say yes. ALJ say yes, actually. I think you were retaliated against. 
because you reported this injury. I'm bringing this to your, your attention because if this was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, Dan and Jonathan, just indicate with nodding or nodding your head or not, two, three years ago, five years ago, do you think an ALJ would have said that he was terminated due to the work-related injury and this is retaliation? No, that wouldn't be the case. But now they're being looked at differently, these whistleblower claims. Arbitrator looked at it again and said, yes, I agree, retaliation due to reporting. But when it went higher up to the circuit court, I mean, to the court, the court remanded it down. And what I mean by remanded it down is said, look, you need to go back and get more information. But they didn't dismiss it. He said, I can't affirm what was said by the employer or the employee because I don't have enough here to tell you if the employer actually decided to term, uh, suspend this particular employee just because they reported untimely. Why I tell you that one as well, again, you have these policies and you have these procedures in place, but make sure you understand how you implement these policies and procedures because they are very, very important. I'm going to do one last one. I'm going to go to Central Cal Transportation because this one, this one is dear to my heart. Okay, I, I was involved in this one. I defended this one. That's why it's dear to my heart. I actually know the facts in this one too. This one was a situation, truck driver. Remember Dan was telling you about STAA and he mentioned truck drivers uh, usually? That's the case here. We have Service Tra Transportation Assistance Act. We have a truck driver who has a overweight load. She texts her manager and says, my load is overweight. He says, send me the, send me the how, how much it weighs. He takes back to her after she sends him the amount, which was about 600 over. He says, oh, that's not the legal amount. You can go ahead and drive. She said, no, I'm not driving it. It is over the amount. He says, call me. And he picks up the phone and he calls her. Now we all can say at that point, if he's telling her to drive, that is protected activity. Her saying that she's not going to drive uh, uh, overweight load is protected activity. He calls her and he, he talks through it and he's like, you know what, you're right, it's overweight. But what I want you to do is I want you to do what is called uh, slam your brakes. So you move, maneuver just a little bit, you slam the brakes and it maneuvers the weight on the truck because you can have certain weight on certain axles that make this underweight that you're able to drive because it was only on one axle. She said, nope, I'm not doing it. He said, look, I need you to at least try to make this underweight before I send another load out to you. And, and, and then you won't have to. Nope, I'm not doing it. She was insubordinate to him, uh, make cursing and talking and screaming. Later on, she was terminated for not doing the break process. At the investigation level, it was dismissed. At the ALJ level, the ALJ says, look, I don't find what she's saying credible because one thing she said, she was scared to, to, to use that break process because although she's done it in the past, she felt that it might be unsafe that day. Um, she also said that she did not think he was trying to make her drive an unlegal load or overweight load, but he was pressuring her to do that break, slam and break situation, which she didn't feel comfortable doing. AOJ said, because of this, you're in violation of the Surface Transportation Assistance Act. You have to pay attorney's fees. You have to reinstate 
$15,000 in punitive damages as well. And I think she also received compensatory damages. We appealed, during the appeal, it was reversed, thankfully. It was reversed and they said, no, there's not sufficient evidence here to show why it's a retaliation complaint, why that, that she met her burden that the employer actually violated the Surface Transportation Assistance Act. I'm going to bring, I brought this one up for a reason, not to talk about, hey, I won this case. That was not the reason I brought it up, of course, because I didn't win yet. What happened is she appealed as well, and now it's in the Ninth Circuit. But what was interesting is what is happening today. Her attorney said, Denise, I'm appealing this, and you know I may win, right? I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, I may win because the climate, the environment regarding whistleblower claims are different now. Yeah, before, it might have been a little different. That was two years ago when the first decision came. But now, with the new administration, with some more focus on different things, I think I'm in a better position to win this. He didn't quote any additional law. He didn't quote anything else. He said, because of the climate now, I think I'm in a better position. Similar to that climate I talked about with that AOJ, finding that it was retaliatory just because it was close in proximity of that workers' comp case. Although we briefed it and we said we did not need oral argument, they decided they wanted our oral argument on this. I wrap this all up to say this. With Dan, Jonathan, and myself, what we have been talking to you about throughout this presentation is realistic. Although OSHA hasn't been at your door yet, although you haven't received that complaint yet, you may definitely receive that complaint if you don't do some of the things, if not all of the things that Jonathan spoke to you about today. I thank you for your time. Thank you, Denise. Hearing about how whistleblower claims are evaluated is, is very helpful. And that concludes our panelists' presentations for today, but we do have some time for Q&A. Jonathan, I'm gonna start with you. Does the new OSHA ETS require employers to protect healthcare employees against retaliation for complaining about COVID-19 infection concerns? The answer, Michelle, is yes. And I'd mentioned this during my presentation. Uh, there is a requirement in the new ETS that healthcare employers have a written plan. And as part of that written plan, they must have an anti-retaliation provision in that as well. Um, so I would certainly urge healthcare employers to make sure that they are educating uh, responsible employees or supervisors with regard to those obligations. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Dan, you're up next. I've heard there's a new bill, the Protecting America Workers Act, and it's said to potentially increase whistleblower protection. How would that be accomplished under that act? Well, the Protecting America Workers Act or the PAWS Act, right? You hear PAWS, you think it's got something to do with Humane Society, but it doesn't. It's a bill that has been introduced uh, since the uh, 2015 Congress. It has not made it out of committee, but if it does, it would expand the uh, definition of protected activity uh, for all of these statutes to include uh, a provision that it is unlawful to retaliate against someone who refuses to perform their duties if they have a reasonable apprehension that performing those duties would result in serious injury to or serious impairment of the health of the employee or other employees. So it, it expands the definition somewhat of uh, protected activity 
but you know, will it will it ever make it out of committee? Who knows? But stay tuned. Got it, Denise. Coming to you next. You talked a little bit about you know the climate and how it changes with administration. Do you see any impact of the COVID nineteen pandemic on how they handle these whistleblower complaints? Definitely. I mean, if you if you notice, even with the change with the ETS with healthcare, is going to be a lot of press on healthcare. Uh, we have that new standard uh, that OSHA has issued. And they're going to be making sure that healthcare facilities and, and settings in healthcare settings, they're complying with those different standards. And when they're hearing employees complain about those, when they're hearing that there's unsafe conditions and someone was either terminated, their pay was adjusted, or there was some kind of adverse action, I don't think you're going to be in a situation where OSHA is going to quickly try to dismiss the case. OSHA is going to look more closely at the case and see if things are being tied. And when I say things, I'm going to explain. Protected activity, some concerns of safety and being in the workplace with any of this adverse action. I think they're going to be looking very, very closely and really scrutinizing it much more with the new administration. And that's not only healthcare, that goes across the board. Thank you. Jonathan, going back to you for another question from our audience members, where is the best place to follow developments around COVID regulations and mandates? I think it's pretty straightforward, uh, OSHA.gov. Um, if you go to the top of the OSHA webpage, uh, there is a tab for COVID-19 resources. Um, and under that tab, uh, there are a number of, not only the regulations of the guidance itself, but also uh, interpretive materials, Q and A's for employers and employees that I think are the first stopping point for that. Um, and that includes the revisions uh, to the OSHA workplace guidance that came out a couple of weeks ago. If you're looking for resources on healthcare related questions, you can go to the CDC website. I've had some employers tell me that their employees don't trust the government and don't trust the CDC. So I've kind of pointed them toward uh, resources like Johns Hopkins University or Medical Center has a great website that has a lot of information up there about COVID. Uh, and COVID prevention, but but I would start for employers generally at OSHA.gov. Thank you. I have a question I'm going to open up to the whole panel. You know, are most whistleblower claims lodged through the hotline? And if so, are those complaints able to be made anonymously? If not, how are they being made? Keep in mind that when a whistleblower claim comes out, uh, it, it's not, I mean, it's not anonymous because the, the employer has the right to be able to address it. And to be able to address it, they do find out who actually is making the claim. The OSHA whistleblower claims is slightly different than an OSHA complaint. When you, as some of you may have received uh, a, a call or what they used to call phone facts by OSHA saying someone is complaining that there's a hazard and can you send me information and let me know about that hazard. That's usually anonymous. You don't know who's doing that. However, with the whistleblower retaliation piece, when you actually receive the complaint in the mail, you actually have the name of the individual or names of the individual who actually uh, filed the complaint. Got it. And, and Denise, to piggyback kind of off an answer you gave earlier, we have another question that's wondering how the different regions handle these claims, especially in the pandemic. So do we expect out here in California that those, those are going to be looked at more liberally as opposed to other places? I would think so. I would, I would truly think so. If you notice, and I, and you, everyone will have a, a look at the slide there. If you notice, there are some regions that have a much larger 
number of whistleblower claims and others. And that's why I wanted to break it down by region. So you see which states, which areas, which regions have more of those um, claims. And that one would be just for your purpose. Uh, actually, region five have the most, which is Chicago area. Uh, and then you're looking at uh, Dallas area, which is six too, with quite a few in Atlanta. Thank you. And we have time for one more question today. I'm going to open it up to the whole panel. Are whistleblower claims and responses handled the same regardless of whether the employee is union or not? Well, I think it's a simple yes. And I assume that, uh, that uh, Joe means does OSHA process it the same? And if, that, and if that's true, yes. Great. Well, thank you. A big thank you to our panelists today for this great information and to all of you listening for your great questions. I am going to turn it over to Peter so he can end the program. Thanks, Michelle, and also to our panel for sharing your thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please look for their contact information in the notes for this podcast. Also, check out the ELA website at ela.law. There you can sign up to receive invitations for upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content from our online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers and the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.